0: Hey, welcome to Dear Seekers. Seems like we have quite a lot of new listeners. So, oh friends, please bear with me. I'd like to take a second to share a little bit about me and what we're doing here. I'm your host, Sasha Shell, a social media and content strategist based in Toronto, Canada, who has experienced working as a TV reporter and a fashion editor. Dear Seekers was created by me just over a year ago in a hope to bring my professional background, which is journalism, content creation, and storytelling, with my personal interests like fashion, home tour, and good conversations. And now, Dear Seekers has grown way beyond my personal satisfaction. We have the honor of sitting down with over 27 intriguing, insightful, and inspiring women in the city. We've hit over 10,000 downloads and were featured on Apple Podcast front page on International Women's Day this year. Okay, enough introduction. Today I'm chatting with Tammy Yu, designer co-founder of Partial, an online platform to discover emerging artists. For art seekers, it's a great place to discover the next beautiful artwork you would like to buy or collect. And for the everyday folks who are fairly new to the game, it's a great place to test out a piece of art by renting it. If you end up loving it, your rental fee will be put in towards your purchase. Kemi's mission is very simple but clear, making great art discoverable and accessible. After you finish our conversation, you will most likely fall in love with her just as I did. She is smart, funny, humble, and has a very optimistic spirit. We chat about her experience going to an all-girl private school in Oakville, the things she've learned to do and not to do from her successful entrepreneurial father, And what does the scrolling culture we're in mean for partial, and how she's working both with and against it. This conversation is on the longer side, so if you can't finish in one go, I totally get it, Um, but I highly recommend you come back. And before we get into it, if you like us, please hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcast and leave us a review, and it would mean a lot to us if you could share with your friends who you think might be interested in. Since we won't be back for another month, you can also join the secret supply on our website at dearseekers.com. My rapid fire chat with Tammy and some amazing local jams recommended by her will be in your inbox two weeks from now. Okay, so let's get into it. okay are you ready (laughs) i think so yeah well i think we have to mention how we met i think that's a very interesting (laughs) story to start is that your husband karen actually reached out which i'm really really glad he did because otherwise (laughs) it might take me longer to find you from the universe and i think it's amazing that what you're doing
1: and i can't wait
0: to ask A lot of questions I have here.
1: Oh, well, thanks, Sasha. Yeah.
0: So I think I wanted to start all the way from the beginning. I'm a firm believer that our upbringing and childhood can do a lot to either damage Mm. or. (laughs) Definitely damage. But
1: but yeah, no. And have a
0: shadow with us. Mm -hmm. Of course, the good things that kind of like. Enlightened us in a way when we became an adult. Mm -hmm. So if we could just go back to think about the three memories that really stood out for you when you were little, some really significant either events or occasions or Mm. um, could be a long period of
1: time or short. Okay, interesting. One thing that stood out for me was as a kid, always um, an overachiever. And definitely my parents helped instill that in me Mm -hmm. for better or for worse. And so one memory, it's funny that you brought this up because I obviously wasn't prepared, but I, one memory that I have is like for grade, I think it was like my grade seven project. We had to create like a structure, like an architectural structure. And uh, so crazy. I remember that night, the night before it was due, my parents and I were sitting in the living room floor, but I was like, I'm going to build a huge structure so at the time Sim City or Sim Tower was a popular computer game where it's basically this computer game Oh yes I remember yeah, that. Yeah where you develop in this case a skyscraper and you populate it and I was like I'm going to make the real life version of that. Mm. So for weeks leading up to it I was dragging my parents around to like Home Depot and Rona we were getting steel things cut and I built actually like a mini tower And with FIMO, which was like a ready-made like clay medium, Mm -hmm. making little people and putting them all in there, creating storefronts and everything. But this was just like one example of how I just went way too hardcore for everything. Like next day, everyone's got what would be a reasonable Mm -hmm. project for, you know, 13 or 14 year old. And I'm there like bringing in this huge sculpture with a giant tower and for me that was like why wouldn't I do that because Mm. that is the best I could do so why wouldn't I just do the best that I could do that memory and how I worked really late on it too it's like I just applied that to everything. I always went over the top whether it was cuz I wanted to challenge myself. It's sort of one of those things where like once you do really great once, mm-hmm. you know that you're capable of it. Right. So if you do a bit less, almost kind of like
0: a curse and a blessing yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Um so that mindset has been always with you is that if if you decide to go for it, and then you're going to put 200% into
1: it. Yeah. For sure. And I mean personally I think it's a good thing because Something that I've learned in my adult life is also to not hang on to things so much, but put in your 200%. Mm. And then when it's ready to die, it's all good. Just leave it. When did you learn that? Because I feel like these two
0: sometimes... Don't really go well together because you right. put so much soul and heart into and time and effort, yep. and you wanted to see it to yep. nurture, or grow, or to a next level. Mm-hmm. And in that process, it's hard to kind of detach from it. So, how did you kind of still do what you do, and then at the same time, when it's
1: about time, you're mm-hmm. ready to let go? Like, definitely took me a while to learn it, and I think this is this is where kind of like business and personal crossover. But I have gotten better at applying that to relationships as well. So basically what makes it easy for me to leave things is once I have know that I've given it 200%, then when I leave it, it's no regrets. Yeah. So that's the thing that makes it harder for me to let things go is when I feel like, you know, okay, do you know what? This thing didn't work out, but I've, I'm not ready to let it go yet because I think there's still potential. So I'm going to hang in there until that day when I'm like, do you know what? I know I can leave this and not still be thinking about it a week from now, three years from now, being like, oh, but, uh because uh, then that's tells if you, I've done yeah. something more? Yeah. And, you know, if you want to tie that back to, like, work or projects, same thing. Like, I will, like, hang on until I really feel like, almost like a towel, like, I've really drained it all out and then that way when I step away from oh, that's it, a good it, metaphor you know like yeah. then I'm like do you know what I gave it everything and I did everything that I could possibly do
0: mm-hmm. what about other memories like a little bit earlier memories than 13 building this <sighs>
1: fantastic towel um it's weird I guess like with with childhood it's it's strange to think back to it because I don't uh spend a lot of time thinking about my childhood um it's i think it's because in my adult life my family kind of broke apart so to think back to when it wasn't like that is like a bit hard Mm -hmm. to do right yeah to um (laughs) oh tell me (laughs) i know but no but it's good it's good to like think back on like good Mm -hmm. memories so um We went to Disneyland, like, way too much. (laughs) When? When you were younger? Yeah. Like, I was lucky enough as a kid to get to go to Disneyland, but I didn't think of it that way. Like, Mm. I didn't appreciate it. Now I'm like, wait, how much is it to get into Disneyland? Are you crazy? Yeah, but, um, so I think we went to Disneyland quite a few times, and that was good. And I guess, like, another childhood memory would have been playing with my middle sister Claudia. So she's just a year and a half younger than me. How many siblings do you have? I have two younger sisters. Okay. So Claudia is a year and a half younger than me. And then Mandy, who's my youngest sister, is, I always have to do the math in my head. She's seven years younger than me. Oh, wow. Yeah. But when we were kids, Claudia and I, we were really creative, I guess. And of that generation, obviously, where we didn't have tech So we just like created these fantasy worlds in our bedroom, and then we had like a spare room that we turned into like a toy room. So many of our days there, like with toys, creating these fake worlds. Mm. Um, I think that would have been would have been the three memories that. Yeah, right now that if you asked
0: at this point, yeah. I know you, you mentioned maybe we don't have time to talk about it but I do want to get into it about your parents and mm-hmm. then how they because even on your personal account is interesting your caption one of your captions is the second generation CBC for people who don't know what CBC is c- right. Canadian uh, Chinese Chinese oh, wait Canadian born Chinese. Chinese yeah yeah
1: oh no God. me too I'm like CBC I'm always like <laughs> Can- <Chinese> c- <laughs> yeah, Canadian Chinese yeah Canadian born Chinese who trying to stay weird or oh yeah something. oh yeah i do have that okay this is an instagram caption by the way honestly these bios i'm like every, I'm like what is what is this i don't know so tell me about um how did your parents come over here mm. and then that story right so my my father um was one of the first of his family to come here. So he and one of his sisters came here way back to study at Concordia University in Montreal. This is so classic, but you could picture the scene like he didn't know English and he worked as a dishwasher (laughs) and he like was like learning English slash like getting into business school at the same time. And like they didn't believe that he could do it. And then by the end, he graduated at the top of his class and he showed them because he's like Chinese and, you know. um, You know what? You have the perfect voice for a trailer. (laughs) (laughs) The year was 1981, maybe? I don't know. Um, So that's when he came over. And my mother at the time was still in Hong Kong but they had met because his father had a factory in Hong Kong and my mom was one of the sewers there so after he'd been here for a while and established like a base that's when he brought my mom over and then they moved to Calgary where he worked for a company out there and then we kind of bounced around like from Calgary came back and lived in Scarborough for a bit yeah and then over time my father um set up his own business here with his colleague and they started off like working out of a garage and then, like well, Typical do the- entrepreneurial story, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, your father's story fixed a perfect sample of like, yeah, an entrepreneur magazine or something. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Like working out of a garage, and okay, this is another thing. Like, and he's still very close to this person. Is he always tells the story like, you know, I always appreciate insert the name here because at the time he take a chance. He take a chance on two Chinese guys running a sewing machine in the, in the garage. And he took a chance on us. And it's true. It was like this brand was looking for, um, so my father is in the manufacturing business. And so, um, they like have factories in uh, Scarborough for like making clothing. Yeah. This like brand at the time was looking for manufacturers and took a chance on these two guys who no one had heard of, were working out of a garage and said, do you know what? I'm going to give you this business that's worth X amount of dollars. Show me what you can do, right? What do you think they saw in your father? I think at the time there's like that kind of blatant determination Mm. says a lot, you know, and the same probably applies today is look at people that I have a chance to work with or collaborate with. A lot of it is about personality. Mm-hmm. I mean, like skill sets, anyone can do it. Anyone can go and buy a sewing machine in my father's case, but to like be reliable and fulfill a project from start to finish, there has to be some sort of trust, I guess, or faith in the other person. I'm gonna guess that's what it was. And like, maybe cause he was like charging way less than everybody else cause he was desperate. <laughs> Who knows? (laughs) Or it could be the combination of two. Yeah, combination of the two. I'm going to give this to you because, you know, I really believe in you, man. Plus, you're 30% cheaper than everybody else. Let's go with this. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
0: With, uh, you know, your dad coming from China here to start over and then... The whole process, you were one of the witnesses, right? Because the three Mm -hmm. girls. Yeah. um, Obviously, you didn't witness, like, every single detail. But what other characters your dad has Mm -hmm. that kind of, like,
1: become beneficial Mm -hmm. when you're building your own business? Oh, interesting. I mean, I guess, like, I take things from my father and my mother, perhaps, because... How so? Primarily, my mom did most of the raising for us because my dad was so focused on his business. So, I mean, in terms of, like, business stuff, my... doesn't even have business, but, like... Uh, just characteristics? Exactly. Okay, my dad is a natural leader, and I think I get that from him. More so... Why, well, by the time we were looking at Karen giving you hand
0: cream, <laughs> massage on set... <laughs> getting all this like pastry ready coffee
1: i can totally see where that leadership coming from do you know okay honestly that as a side note it's usually not like that we're very like balanced this was him (laughs) just being like i think he he recognizes and this is like a partnership thing too you recognize when it's someone else's time and so you step in to be the supporting role that's amazing and then um like yeah without even asking like he didn't and that's why Kieran is great. And you know, I hope he feels like we, it's the same thing for him. Like sometimes sometimes it's like two people 50/50 presented. Other times it should be like one person it's their moment and someone else supporting.
0: I think good partnership or relationship, even friendship, is if one person is mm. shining at that moment and then the other person should even put on a spotlight or something mm. on that person right. to make that person shine even better. Oh yeah. So I think that's, that's how quite- I felt when... You know, this whole morning the photo shoot was going on. Aww. I think that was really important. Aww. But thanks, that's
1: nice. But like, let go back go. to your your dad's character, <laughs> right? Right, <So> my dad. <laughs> We're kind of off oh. track, but I feel like that was interesting yeah. to talk about. Well, actually, no, we can kind of segue into this. But like, um, yeah. So the strengths that my dad has as a business person, or f- perhaps even as a father, doesn't necessarily translate into like. <laughs> relationships like he's not great at um you know and that's fine not everyone has to be good at everything but he's not great at interpersonal relationships it took him i think maybe too long to learn how to balance work and family life you know which played out in many different ways so like their their marriage fell apart i mean it's always one of these things where you look back and think like oh what could i have done differently but a lot of that like determination and being focused on work i think trickled into other things so that's something that I am learning to balance is I get that kind of like oh be so focused on like being the best person you can be work-wise or career-wise but I think since then I've been able to see like hey do you want my my dad did that and it cost him xyz so how do you balance that I think but my mom also like even though she was quote-unquote housewife for most of her life she is also like really creative and crafty Mm -hmm. definitely yeah
0: I knew you grew up in Oakville by listening to the latest podcast you did with oh, Broken Mixed Tape. Yeah. Which I think I highly recommend other people to listen to because, um, it's amazing. Going back in nostalgia mm-hmm. is always something I like to do. Yeah. Which we're going to explore later. But I knew you grew up in Oakville. So how was it like to grow up in Oakville? Ugh. A city now <laughs> is still pretty white dominated.
1: Yes. And then
0: I can imagine 20 years ago when you were a teenager, uh, or yeah. Before, yeah, yeah. pre-teen, what was it
1: like kind of um, painting the picture for me? So, I mean, like so many things, I think in anyone's life, it all becomes much clearer once you're an adult looking back. But definitely, I think like growing up in Oakville obviously is, um, I don't want to use the word privilege, but kind of like my family didn't have to worry so much about money or whatever. Like by the time we had moved to Oakville, um, it was like a new suburb that was just like popping up. And uh, I think as a kid, I loved it because there were all these like things that happen in life that like these adult things aren't an issue when you're a kid. So for example, race being something. As a kid, you're essentially, I think I can use the term colorblind. It doesn't register that people look different or whatever. And f- even amongst friends, everyone's the same, it feels like, at the time anyways, mm-hmm. in the school that I went to. But yeah, it's weird, like once I entered like pre-teen shift, I also switched schools before I went to high school. So I went from the public school system to private school, which was like a small all girls private school, which was a huge change for me. Didn't know anybody. And I think that's when I didn't like living in Oakville or I didn't like my situation. Because I suddenly was like, "Why do I feel different? And why do I not fit in?" Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's when it became more clear as to like why I was different. Mm-hmm. Before I switched schools, mm-hmm. I had like a core group of friends. That's a whole other thing about like when you have a support group, you're suddenly sheltered from the outside influences or other judgments or things like that because you have your core group and you're suddenly blind to these other things because you always feel supported and you always feel like you've got somebody whereas switching schools and I say that this is like uh, looking back I do appreciate that opportunity to be suddenly not not have any friends or to not be popular or to not be like recognized I guess at the time I hated it I like cried so much when I switched schools. But now looking back, I see how that was like a good experience for me. Why is that good experience? I think it gave me maybe humility that I didn't, I I would definitely be a different person now. I think like every decision or path that people take, whether it's a small decision or a big decision, it makes you who you are today. Mm -hmm. And I like who I am today. And I think a lot of that, has to do with the fact that I had, like, a crappy couple years during my, like, pre-teen, entering teen dumb, Switching
0: school, not fitting in, feeling alone, all these don't sound like a great experience for Tammy. In hindsight, though, Tammy appreciates this couple of miserable years. It helped shaping who she is today. And most importantly it gave her the opportunity to quote-unquote find her people. And that gave her the confidence to just be who she really is.
1: One experience that I really appreciated about that was when I think of when I switched schools, the people who I ultimately ended up being friends with when I first started at school maybe wouldn't have taken the time to be my friends, whereas the people who did Mm -hmm. were the ones who, yeah, were the quote-unquote losers or the people who also were um considered weird and didn't have friends but honestly like they were the ones who first came up to me to be like hey why don't you sit with us for lunch hey mm. um what's up and I think like it kind of feels like a mean Girls scenario or your classic like teen movie from back in the day where people are like clambering up the social ladder mm. so like I started off being like no friends, definitely ate lunch in the bathroom more than once. To when I graduated being like student council and sure, not like the super coolest person. Like I had bad skin, greasy hair, was Asian or whatever, but still like a big difference. But it's yeah. kind of interesting you mentioned because the kind of like a situation you were in, mm-hmm. well,
0: not by choice, but mm-hmm. you were put in that situation and then almost like, you were grouped with the quote-unquote yeah. the weirdos, the awkward yeah. people, and those people actually might, oh, at that time, f- sure. and now become your niche, then that's kind of something, brings something out of you.
1: Yeah, and I really, I think especially after high school, I've seen how, and I hope this is the case for these friends of mine who um, were friends with me first, is like, out of high school, weird is good. Do you know what I mean? Like, when you're different, that's what makes you stand out. Some people love their teenage years. I did not like mine. I appreciated it, and I wouldn't change anything, but it didn't feel good at the time. I feel like if I didn't leave Oakville, and it's not just about Oakville, it's about that pocket of people where I always felt like, oh, this is weird, I don't fit in, it must be me, but it's because I didn't see that, hey, there's all these other groups of people, and I didn't realize that until I moved to Toronto, and it was like, oh my gosh, there are people who are like weird like me, who dress a bit weird and do weird things with their hair and stuff. Suddenly it gives you permission to be like, oh, I don't have to change who I am. And I feel as though, and this isn't a knock against Oakville, like everyone's bubble is different. Given my situation, I could see how if I stayed in a certain circle and was always uncomfortable and trying to keep up with this group of people that I honestly maybe naturally wouldn't fit in with, I would be very different today. I would be... not as confident, really insecure, and just like less happy with myself, I think.
0: Now living in Toronto, studying fashion communications at Ryerson University, Tammy feels a sense of belonging. She's doing very well at school, winning all kinds of awards. She even won a design award in Japan. But when she graduated her belief system got
1: shaken. It was the same mentality as when I was like in middle school or even, I don't want to say elementary school, but that same thing was like, you don't kill it in school. You're going to kill it in life. That was so not the case. (laughs) But anyway, so after that, I got an internship at an ad agency did that for a couple years and thought it was great. And then I got hired there and then I got laid off. And I think same thing, the laying off was very healthy for me to experience in the early years. Cause I was like, how could you lay me off? I'm, amazing. I'm awesome. <laughs> and you know, like one side of me can say things like, oh yeah, well they lost this big client that was, I was working on. You should have gotten the hint Tammy when they laid off everyone else in your team. I was working on freelance graphic design stuff during the day, open concept office, cause I had nothing to do. And when the vice president's like, Tammy, what are you working on? Oh, I'm just working on this project for my dad. (laughs) Wow. You know, when they pull me into a room, Tammy, if you weren't working on this department, where else do you see yourself in the agency? Eh, nothing really else interests me here. No, no. And then being shocked when I'm laid off. (laughs) But yeah, just like all these naivete, I think is the word. So that was good for me to experience and also be like, do you know what? The marks and the awards in school don't really mean anything. So after that, I worked for a bakery, actually, in like at like Wilson and whatever, like North Toronto, Mm -hmm. which is funny because I then moved downtown to work close to the agency then I was laid off, and then I was now commuting an hour and a half the other way to work at this bakery as an in-house graphic designer, which was also a good experience. So I worked there for a couple years, and then during that time, I kind of saw that I was gradually getting like, as busy with freelance graphic design work as I was, and um, I wasn't as enthusiastic about it as I once was. Mm-hmm. So I um, passed that opportunity on to someone else and decided to just try working freelance for mm-hmm. a few years. Yeah. I wonder, because you
0: study fashion communications, why did you kind of move away from the fashion right. industry or the fashion field mm-hmm. to graphic design? I can see the some correlations, but mm-hmm. uh, still quite a different industries.
1: Yeah, well, I ended up looping back to fashion afterwards. But I think when I left fashion school, it was like four years of fashion. And some people kind of joke like, oh my gosh, after four years of being around fashion people... You just don't want to be around fashion people anymore (laughs) um which is true for some groups but i think like with any industry there's going to be the people that are annoying and obnoxious and then also like the groups of people who are doing fashion in an accessible friendly good way Mm -hmm. too so um i don't think that was necessarily the reason but i at the time i didn't see where i could fit in the fashion industry myself and over those four years Obviously, when I started at Ryerson, I didn't think I was going to get into graphic design. But that's something about like starting school so young. It took four years to figure out like who I was, what I was interested in. And by the time I graduated, I was interested in graphic design. And -hmm. if I knew that when I was 18 or 17, I would have applied to graphic design school, but I didn't. So there you have it.
0: Yeah, and I also feel like at that point, the fashion industry was more focusing on being inspirational. Mm -hmm. But I think now it's moving away slightly from that to being aspirational. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And it's sometimes hard to see, like, were those, you know, when you talk about, like, oh, these sort of other, not subcultures of fashion, but these other groups, were those were those always there and I just didn't know about them? Or sometimes, like, things seem different and then I sometimes wonder, or is it just because I'm different now, like... At the time, I didn't know how to look for like, yeah, the cool, maybe sustainable or locally made fashion scene. In my mind, it was still like fashion equals vogue Mm. and everybody wants to be part of that. I mean, anything creative, it's also very easy to focus on the people who are killing it and be like, oh gosh, I suck. Therefore, I don't belong here. Right. Yeah. um, And that probably also comes with being like younger and insecure too, putting that much weight on what other people were doing whereas yeah when i guess like when someone whether they get older or just like have the wisdom to just be comfortable with themselves that pressure gets taken away and then you can just do your own thing but Mm -hmm. yeah so that kind of tied back really nicely
0: with what we're going to be talking about do your own thing Mm. um i wonder how deep partial all come together
1: right Perhaps I also get this from my dad where it's like constantly looking for new challenges. And at the time I was thinking of, hey, I noticed that a couple of friends have been like borrowing art from me. So at the time I was buying like prints and getting them framed. But then my taste changed. So then I was just storing in my locker and people were like asking me to borrow my art. What for at that point? For them to hang on their own walls. Because they oh, just really? couldn't. They just didn't know where to look for art and they just couldn't be bothered. So I was just like, yeah, just borrow mine, use it for like six months. Oh, whatever. So they're like,
0: oh, it's in your closet anyway. Yeah. Might as well just be on my wall.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, yes, definitely, please. Like, I suggested it. I'd rather this get sunlight and views rather than just languishing in a locker. And I was like, I had this idea. I was like, oh, that'd be cool if this was like a thing. And then I just sort of put that idea on the back burner, but then it came up again as some friends of mine were entering that phase in their life where they were kind of looking for more permanent homes and investing in their house. And same thing, they're like, hey, Tilly, do you have any ideas of where I could get like art? Um, and then I was thinking as well of like a couple of artists, friends of mine who have so much beautiful art and they don't know really what to do with it. Mm-hmm. So that's when I started doing research and this would have been in 2015. You know, is this just me and my bubble? I'm very, like, almost hyper-aware of, okay, Timmy, this is the way the world is, but is that because of the bubble you live in? We create totally these realities and worlds around us. Yeah, it's and like p- what we talk about, like, we kind of curate
0: answers we're hoping to hear. Yes,
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so
0: like, you're like, I
1: think I'm solving a problem, but is it a problem out yes, there? Yes, yes. And I think this is, like, a very common, like, starting place for startups is, like, you want to build a startup that solves a problem for you it's so much work so just be sure that this is a problem that can translate Mm -hmm. that is actually a problem for like more than just like five people so yeah how did you validate the idea then this there is a problem there's a market need here okay so this is interesting so i did like a google form and sent it out and shared it on facebook or whatever that had like some of these like core questions like do you buy art if not why not do you like art? Like all these kind of basic things to mm-hmm. suss out, okay, are people looking for art? And if so, are they buying it? And if not, what's preventing them from buying it? Mm-hmm. So is it price? Is it you don't know where to look? Is it X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. And then I think I ended up getting like maybe like 120 responses, just like in the GTA. Mm-hmm. And from that, I was like... How did you uh, reach out to these people with the form? Um, so I emailed my friends and ask them to forward it on to their oh, friends so it's all in the friend yeah. circle and then just kind of expand it from there yeah i posted it in a couple of facebook groups mm-hmm. um like so this was the other thing i was like asking artists questions as well as asking art seekers questions right anyway so I came back got 120 responses i did research online as well with like international art reports Articles, all that sort of thing. Filled up a whole like orange notebook, made a research report and everything. And to me, from what I saw, oh, the answer is overwhelmingly people want art. People are looking for art. People can afford art, but they're just not buying it. Mm. So why? And try and fill in the gap here. So I thought, if I build it, it's that easy. They'll come.
0: Their survey validated Tammy's assumption, so she's quite optimistic, thinking, there, we do have a problem, and we can solve it. But there are a few hidden barriers that didn't get conveyed through the survey.
1: People love art. People love supporting your art, but once that you ask them to pay for it, they'll, oh, I'll think about it. And that was something that did not come through in the survey Mm because I think a lot of people think, oh, if art was affordable, I would buy it. So I was like, bam, I will create a rental program where it's $35 a month, Mm -hmm. $50 a month. Sure, it's not for everybody. It's not within everybody's budget, but that's definitely way more accessible. Yes. And when I did that and nothing really happened, I was like, oh, and it took me a long time to realize it's actually the same challenge that a lot of artists have is people think like, oh, I don't buy art because I can't afford it. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, a lot of people, um, perhaps whether it's a North American thing or a certain market thing, we haven't yet gotten to the point where it's, it's money that we have set aside to spend on art. Mm. So something that we've really been working on or realized is it's not just about providing the product, but also like educating and inspiring people as to like, hey, you never spent money on art before. Mm-hmm. Now's the time to do it. Because that's something I learned is like, if you ask somebody to give you $10 that they wouldn't otherwise have spent, it doesn't matter that it's $10 or $5 or $50. They don't want to give it to you because why would they spend it on that They're used to spending money on clothing and food and wine and a Netflix subscription. But now to say, like, spend it on something that you never really thought about before Mm -hmm. is hard.
0: Now you know the challenges Mm -hmm. from what you have been sharing. There are a few one is like people feel like art is for the rich, mm-hmm. art is not for me. Mm-hmm. For other people it could be art is for me, but it's not affordable. Right. And some other are saying art is for me and it's affordable, but I don't want to pay for it. How did you go from start and then yeah. realizing all these problems yep. and then to adjust yep. the
1: platform according sure. to the feedback you got? So like we definitely pivoted a couple times. And my co-founder, Chris, and I first started, we are like, oh, this will be like, and this is so cliche, this will be like the Airbnb for art. So easy. We'll just do it. The tagline. I know. (laughs) Let's get the tagline and we're all done. (laughs) But the, it was so much more complicated because art, like as I was saying before, it's, a personal thing. A lot of the traditional fine art industry is based on relationships. It's based on a certain type of person spending art. That's why, like, this is not a real statistic, but that's why it feels like 90% of the population is not buying fine art, because a certain group is. And it's hard to change that. So we were like, but this is good, because now this is even more of a motivation for us. It wasn't just about, oh, we'll make this thing, and then suddenly these people will have art in their house. It's become almost this, like, I don't want to say like a movement, but we're driven by this challenge. And, you know, I'm like always thirsty for challenges. It's like, I'm not just going to like make something that's like a commercial product. We want to help change people's minds about how they think about art. And And it's not about getting art on partial now. It's about just people who have never thought about spending money on art. If we can encourage you to just pop into a gallery the next time you walk by instead of just walking by and, like, look at the art and think, like, do I like this? Maybe go to an art fair or a craft fair even if you've never been before and spend 50 bucks on a print and support a local artist. If we can, like, help change even a little bit of that, that's awesome. Yeah, when we started, we are like, hey, let's help artists move the artwork that's in their studio into homes because it's beautiful stuff that's made for people to see and people just are resorting to maybe mass market prints because A, they don't know what else to do and B, they don't think they can afford it. But if we make people realize how amazing it is, get art that an artist has made with their hands, put their feelings and like years of skill and thought into that. And then now you get to share that with them. Like that's something that you cannot recreate in any other form. Like reading a book is its own like art form that, an experience that you can appreciate. Watching a movie is its own thing. Going out to an amazing meal in Toronto is its own thing. And I've learned as well, more so than I thought I was going to, is like interacting with original art and with the artist behind it is also it's like a whole new other experience mm-hmm. that I could easily have just gone my entire life without caring about.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think like the human aspect is what has kept partial going as well. Like when we've seen how many artists have been – um enthusiastic about it Mm -hmm. and when something happens, like a transaction and they're so excited, that's great. Yeah. That makes me think like, oh yeah, like we took like a 10% transaction fee on this. Let's definitely keep this business going for another three months. (laughs) We just made seven (laughs) dollars. You know, like (laughs) but yeah, so a little yeah, a little victory
0: is worth celebrating.
1: Yeah. Um and that's you know to go back to how our business has changed. That was another one of the pivots where initially we made this partial for people looking for art, and it's now changed to, this is a platform for artists. We used to think of the art and the artists as, you know, if we were talking very plainly, the supply, the inventory, Mm -hmm. who we're really talking to is the art seekers. But as we've worked with the artists more and probably become more emotionally attached to them, we're like, no, no, like, you know what you're doing. Tell us what you need. Now let's... Shift this model into something for you to help you mm. sell your work more. It's turned into more like a discovery platform. Initially, when we started, we're like, Oh crap. But what if, what if someone finds an artist and then DMs them on Instagram? Right. And then we lose that transaction. And over time, we realized that doesn't matter. It takes time for people to get used to the idea of art that honestly, if someone finds an artist on partial, follows them on Instagram or checks out their format page or whatever, but through partial has discovered them and now becomes a fan. And maybe three months later, sends them a message and be like, Hey, I think I want to buy one of your small pieces. Mm. That is awesome. And there's no need for us to like be like, Oh, but you found them on partial and you have to keep the transactions exclusive. It's not how the industry works. I've learned it's different from a fashion brand or like an Airbnb with houses where, the platform is essential for the transaction to happen what we found is the strength of partial is for people to discover artists Mm -hmm. and then from there hopefully like start that journey of being a fan of art and like perhaps one day maybe investing in a piece of art yeah
0: with any art gallery or art online platform there comes with curation Mm -hmm. so can you tell me a little bit about the whole process of curating because I think that's kind of like for me at least to see the challenge is that as a platform you want to bring diversity to the art but at the same time you also want to have that partial Mm -hmm. artistic aesthetic to the brand so when you curate like what's the process now
1: Currently the way it is is we opened it up for any artist to join. It started off being highly curated by me, but mm-hmm. then we realized like we didn't start partial so Tammy could be an art broker. That's not the goal. Right. It's the goal to offer a tool to good artists to use. Um so we then opened it to everybody and we're now dialing it back again. So we like started off at like super curated not curated at all and now we're gonna land somewhere in the middle mm-hmm. where it's gonna be like invite only for partial right and we curate it a bit more again what was the lesson you've learned along the way mm. that from the first phase to the second and now to the third yep so i mean i champion any artist who's trying to be an artist whether i like your art or not i think as a person it's amazing to be a practicing artist. It's very hard to do. You're constantly like under the judgment of other people and honestly things that I like other people might not like and things that I don't like other people have seen love so that's great. But for the purposes of Partial, what we realize in terms of helping the art seeker find art is that same thing. We have like 1300 available art pieces on Partial right now and in the scrolling culture that we're in, people scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll and scroll, And it doesn't feel like you see anything that you like or need and there's no one like giving you guidance. And I think especially for something new for a lot of people, like if you're trying to look at art for the first time or you're like a newbie or you've never bought art before, it can be very intimidating and just like, I don't even know. I'm just going to like leave Mm the site. And that's something that we realize is like, oh, people like having someone help them curate and like. Whittle down this huge variety of artwork Into like, okay, here's all this artwork you can browse But here's also like 75 pieces Mm. That you might like In this style Or here's also this That's what we have realized is of value And same thing, everything's been an experiment Especially in this kind of Wild west territory of Fine art online Mm There's no real like other example to compare it to. There are lots of great examples of art websites out there and marketplaces, but none that have really reflected what we're trying to do. And the good thing, which isn't necessarily advice I would give other startups, but because Chris and I have just been able to bootstrap the whole thing ourselves, I do the design and the marketing and we both come up with the ideas. He's a whiz developer. It's not been hard for us to roll out all these different iterations of Hey, this is almost what was working, but now that it's out there, the reaction isn't what we thought. So mm-hmm. let's try this. Like, even though it's been the same beast, but shifting. Shifting, yeah. Yeah.
0: Talking about shifting, we are now getting into a territory that might be a little bit too business driven to some of you who are listening. But I do believe whether you are an entrepreneur, a creator, or even a practicing artist, as long as you are connected to the market, Some of the principles of testing, pivoting, and making adjustments can apply to whatever you are doing, one way or another. How are you feeling about this whole idea Mm. of pivoting, changing things up, and then maybe this will work, maybe it
1: doesn't, let's see. That's actually a really good question because I think coming from me being under this illusion that everything I did was always awesome and correct, to then, especially as I get older, being like, oh yeah, this isn't like a slam dunk hit off from the beginning. Why is that? And I used to, I think at the beginning with Partial, I was like, oh, this is so hard. This is so hard. And especially like being in Toronto, you hear all these stories. Same thing about like looking at other people killing it. You're like, oh my God, they just got this much investment. Oh my gosh, this, look at this person. And I had to learn a lot about not caring as much. And also about understanding what it means when someone invests money into your business. You have to be very sure it's the step that you want to take because it could kill your business too. And also with pivoting, it's okay to be flexible and figure it out because it's not about how right your original idea was. It's about like, for me, it's about how, what can I do to ensure that partial can be a long-term sustainable business? And if that means like changing certain things without compromising your original value as to what this is about and it's about connecting artists with art seekers or people who just are interested in art showing people what a life with art could be like as long as that is still fundamentally what it's about then it's okay to wiggle and same things like even over the last couple of years my experience as um, a person or someone who's like in the art world has changed drastically as well. Like I've also learned a lot when I started partial, I didn't know anything about fine art. I was just someone who liked art. I went to galleries, I supported my artist friends, but there was so much for me to learn about what people are looking for in art or how relationships work in terms of people's relationships with art, the psychology behind it, and also to understand that the art industry is, this is the way it was and still is and the kind of online move around the world as to like how can we make sure fine art or galleries or whatever still exist. Okay. So my last question before the rapid fire is um, out of like personal
0: journey or mm. entrepreneurial journey, what is the lo- lesson that took you the
1: longest to learn? Ooh. I think something that I learned with the entrepreneurial journey is that it doesn't have to define who you are this sort of goes back to maybe you know it's kind of nice that you're tying this back in with your first question about childhood i think when i was younger i put a lot of my identity and personal success in the work i was doing and even though it's still such a huge part of who I am and it's still so important to me, something that I have learned and continue to work on reminding myself of is that it's not the most important thing. I think like as an entrepreneur, it's very, yeah, it's like naturally I love ideas and taking on challenges and trying to problem solve and like make something successful. And I still obviously all want all those things, but I've learned that life is also great without those things, which has been hard as someone who's like a workaholic overachiever. There are many other things that are... um Yeah, it's sort of like at the end of the day, and by end of the day, this is a bit morose, but like at the end of your life... I think of like, hey, Tammy, what are you really going to be happy about? Or what are the moments when you talk about memories that you're going to look back on? It's probably not going to be like, oh, my God, that meeting when you presented that report. shwing, That was amazing. No, I'm thinking of what, where do I want to be in the future and trying to make my life around that. And part of that is like I would love... To see like, you know, I have in my mind where I'd love to see partial in five years. And that is part of like my future plan. But there are so many other working parts to Tammy in five years as well that mm-hmm. I'm remembering exist, <laughs> especially when I speak to entrepreneurs who are in their 60s. Perhaps my father being one of them, even though we don't talk like in the most, in like a Chinese parent child relationship, we don't talk, (laughs) but we just observe. (laughs) Yeah. Trust me. I know firsthand. (laughs) Yeah. Like my father, you know, I love him, but he's now in his mid sixties and he's a successful entrepreneur for sure. But it's not what I would want my life to be like. And I know that he has regrets for putting so much focus on that. And, you know, and there are other anecdotes that are less personal, you know, like where you think of there's a few quotes out there by like ad execs who've been very, very successful and they talk about the regrets of missing birthdays and whatever and whatever for these very important client meetings or presentations and deals going on. And at the end of your life, those things don't matter, really. Mm-hmm. So um, that's what I remind myself of. That's beautiful. <laughs>
0: Actually, I lie. Before we get into the rapid fire chat, yeah, um, I do want to ask you. Um, I know partial is invite only for artists, mm-hmm. but if an artist feel like could be a good fit, how should they go about?
1: Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, so there's information on our website, and they can request to be invited. Okay, and then that comes to us, and we review it. And then also for artists that are on partial, they have like an invite code they can share. Mm-hmm. As well, but yeah, just get in touch, just say hi, yeah, just say yeah. hi
0: sometimes. I think if, that's a barrier for people to just like drop a note. yeah, I
1: think your husband has done really well on that. <laughs> no, and I was gonna say I think that philosophy of just say hi or drop a note can apply to anything like f- forget even like partial and artist, but even just like trying to learn about things. I had to do that a lot when I entered this sort of art startup space, yeah, so yeah, just say hi, just say hi.
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Speaking of dropping a note and just saying hi, I welcome that with open arms. If you'd like to get in touch, you can DM me on Instagram at Dear Seekers or send me an email at Sasha at Dear I might not be able to reply to you within 24 hours, But I promise I will respond back when I can. And if you love Dear Seekers, I would really appreciate it if you could share with your friends who you think might be interested in and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Our rapid fire chat with Tammy will be in your inbox in two weeks. So make sure to sign up on dearseekers.com. Tammy has shared some awesome local jams with us. You don't want to miss that. Okay, chat soon. Until then, keep seeking.